Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our uh, children's ministry. So those who are participating in that can make your way back to the room there. Our volunteers will be there to greet you this morning and teach you the Word of God in that class and in that context. Uh, This morning, we, as I mentioned, are going to be in Hebrews 11, which we began last week. We're going to really focus in on uh, verses 5 through 12 this morning. But what I want to do is actually get a running start back up into chapter 10 and read through 11, 12. So we're going to begin in Hebrews 10, 35, just to be sure we remember this context and then read all the way through chapter 11, verse 12. So if you would read along with me uh, silently as I read for us our passage this morning, and then I will pray for us and ask for the Lord's help. So we'll begin in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible." By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer And builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's pray together. Father, every week we want to just take a moment before we dive into your word together to come before you and to ask for your help. Father, that of course begins with acknowledging our helplessness. Father, how weak and frail we are apart from the power of your Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell in us. And so, Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And because of what Christ has done through faith in him, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. You have graciously uh, communicated and revealed yourself through the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would do exactly what you have promised to do, that you would, by the power of your spirit who lives within us, give us understanding of the truth of your word and that we would therefore be transformed by it, that we would become more like Jesus because of what we're doing here together this morning. Father, we know that we can't do this in our own strength or in our own power, and so we ask you to do beyond what we could ever ask or think this morning. Father, I pray that you would guide my words. Father, I know that I say this every week, but every week I desperately need your help. I pray that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you and true of your word, that no one would be led astray, but that you would lead us into all truth for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And so, Father, we ask that you would do great things among us this morning as you work in us to increase our faith and to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Endurance, by definition, is difficult. The word endurance uh, in the dictionary is defined this way. The fact or power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process without giving way. Enduring a difficult process or situation without giving way. So I wanted to start in chapter 10 because I want to remind us that in chapter 10, verse 36, God says to us through the author of Hebrews that we have need of endurance. As believers, as those who trust in Jesus, we are going to go through unpleasant and difficult things throughout our lives. And the call to endure means that we don't give way, that we don't, as the author of Hebrews said in 1035, that we don't throw away our confidence. Now, we've been reminded week after week of the context of Hebrews that the author wrote this to first century Jewish Christians who were struggling, who were facing persecution, some of them even being thrown into prison. And he is saying to them, you're going to have to endure. Don't throw away your confidence. Make it through this. Don't go back. Don't give up on Jesus just because it's hard. Now, we may not in our current culture and time be facing those kind of external pressures of persecution from the government or threatened with imprisonment, but that does not mean 
that our walk with Christ is not difficult nonetheless. The call to endure is a call to you and I as well. I mean, just think about just normal everyday life. We face physical weariness, physical ailments, chronic diseases, loss, loss of loved ones, challenges of marriage, challenges of singleness, challenges of parenting, challenges of wanting to be a parent but not yet being able to, challenges of job and workplace, challenges of wanting a job and not being able to get one. We face down the temptations of the world daily that flood toward us through social media and entertainment, unbelieving friends, co-workers, the internet, and on and on. Finances cause significant stress and tension in our lives. Your work causes stress. Your studies in school can seem overbearing at times. We face the pain of heartbreak and disappointment and betrayal and embarrassment. And I've only begun to scratch the surface of the challenges of this life. And as believers, we're not immune to any of these things. In fact, often because we are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus, these struggles are not muted. Instead, they're exponentially increased because we're striving to remain faithful when the world is tugging at us and drawing us and desiring that we give up on Jesus, that we give in to sin and walk away from him. And so the intensity increases and increases. And we have to be blunt, following Jesus is not easy. And Jesus told us as much in Matthew 14, 27 and 28, where he tells us that we must be willing to bear our cross. And he says to count the cost of following him. That if we're going to be his disciples, we have to be willing to bear our cross and count the cost of following him. And anyone who proclaims a gospel that says otherwise is proclaiming a false gospel. And it's a dangerous gospel to tell people that when you come to Jesus, life all of a sudden is going to get easy and your life is going to be full of wealth and you're going to be healthy all the time, right? The health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel is of the devil because all it does is create thorny soil, right? In the parable of the soils that Jesus tells us and the gospel is planted in it and it grows up and it seems to be genuine. But in the end, we find out that it's not because when the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and sin grabs around it and entangles it in the thorns, it snuffs it out and it never bears any fruit. And one of the reasons that happens is because we don't prepare people for the thorns and the struggles and the temptations and the difficulties of following Jesus. So when the hardship comes, they give up because they were never told to count the cost. You know, I'll never forget in high school basketball when our assistant coaches in practice would get out these 
these big pads and they would put it on their arms like a medieval shield, right? It was this big thing. And, and they would get under the basket and we were told we had to go in to try and do a layup and they would just pound us with these big pads. I don't even know that they would be allowed to do that anymore today, but just pound us with these pads, like try to lay us out. And then we would do another drill where uh, the, 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 the big guys, like the centers and forwards, the, the taller guys would have to be under the basket and the coach would shoot and intentionally miss. And, and there would be four of us in there and uh, the rules were there were no rules and we would have to get the rebound and stay inside the key, which is like the, the kind of rectangle under the basket. And you could scratch, claw, tackle, punch, grab, kick. It did not matter. And you had to try to get the ball in the basket while everybody else, the three other guys, were trying to keep you from getting in the basket by any means necessary. Now, why in the world... Did he make us do that? Because there are no big shield pads in a normal game of basketball. There is no tackling in a normal game of basketball, or at least there shouldn't be. But why? Because he wanted us to be ready for games that at times could get really physical. He didn't want us walking into a game thinking we weren't going to get knocked around a little bit, grabbed a little bit, pushed a little bit. And so they prepared us. They made us ready. They made us realize, look, it's going to be hard. And so because they made us ready, we were often able to endure. Well, in the same way, I feel like we often don't prepare new believers for their need to endure through the difficult days of following Jesus. And a passage like this is just honest. He's pulling no punches, right? He says to us, you have need of endurance. You're going to have to fight through it. And the reason we have to be honest is so that we're ready to cling to Jesus when the hard days come. Instead of giving up because we somehow were lied to and told that it wasn't going to be that hard. You see, as I mentioned before, these, Hebrews, these Hebrew believers were being tempted to walk away from Jesus and prove that they never belonged to him to begin with. And the whole book of Hebrews is saying, you don't want to do that. Christ is more glorious than that. He is the supreme one who's superior to anything that you could go back to. It is worth your endurance. Yes, you're going to struggle, but do not throw away that confidence. Do not throw it away. You have to endure. So how do we do that, right? That's the question ultimately that's being pressed upon us. How do we endure and in 1039, the author of Hebrews answers that question, and he says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. So if we're going to endure and not shrink back, if we're going to endure and preserve our souls, we're going to have to do it through faith. And so the rest of chapter 11, as we talked about last week, is explaining to us and showing us and demonstrating for us what that faith is going to look like. And last week at the beginning of chapter 11, we saw that faith is having an assurance of what God has promised us, an assurance of things hoped for. We saw that faith is being convinced he's at work, even when it may be something that we cannot see with our own eyes. 
And ultimately, that faith, that assurance of things hoped for, that conviction of things not seen in the lives of the Old Testament saints is what brought God's pleasure to them. It's what allowed God to commend them. It's what drew God's eyes to them. Look, what's fascinating about chapter 11, what we're going to see play out as we look at these examples of faith in the lives of the Old Testament saints is that these are not stories of faith bringing wealth and health and ease. No, it's stories of men and women who struggled, who faced difficulties and uncertainties and suffering and mockery, but all the while kept their eyes on the promises of God. And because of that, they were able to endure. And ultimately, they were declared to be righteous by faith. They were commended by God. And so we're being called to walk in their shoes and to follow their example of faith. It is laid out before us. So as I said before, one way we endure is by looking at examples of faithful saints who have gone before us, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing for us this morning. And so we're going to continue and look at the faith of four more people. Uh, we started into the faith of Enoch last week, but we're going to take a more robust full view of that. So we're going to see the faith of Enoch, number one. Number two, the faith of Noah. And number three, together, the faith of Abraham and Sarah. The faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, and the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And their lives are going to be laid before us as an example to follow that we can learn from as we seek to endure in our walk with Christ. So number one, let's look at the faith of Enoch. You see there in verse 5, <clears throat> to reference that again, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, as I mentioned, we, we briefly touched on this last week, but this deserves a, a deeper dive. We were short on time at the end last week, so I just want to return to this. Some of it will repeat, but, but we'll go a little further into it. Now, Enoch is only briefly mentioned in Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. It's in the midst of the genealogy that takes us from Adam to Noah, and there Enoch appears in the middle of that in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. And this is what it says about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, if you read that on his own, you would just think, okay, Enoch walked with God, he was faithful, and he was not, for God took him. And we might assume, well, that means Enoch died. But if you read the genealogy, right, it's, remember, this is in the middle of other generations. Every other generation ends with these three words, and he died, <laughs> Right, at least you, no guesswork, no misunderstanding, those dudes died. It does not say that about Enoch. It does not say that Enoch died. So it stands out. It is unique what it says about Enoch. And it says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. 
Now that's the extent of what we know about Enoch right there in one verse, other than who he fathered and how long he lived after he fathered him. Now, perhaps Elijah being taken up is an example, a helpful parallel that we do know more details about. When Elijah was taken up like a chariot of fire, Elisha, Elijah's servant, kind of assistant really, watched it happen. A chariot of fire came in and swept Elijah away. He didn't die and he was taken up into heaven. And then when Elisha returns, Elisha's servant says, we should go looking for Elijah. And Elisha's kind of like, I don't think you're going to find him. And they insist on looking for him. And so they go and look. And it says, interestingly, they did not find him. And that's exactly what it says about Enoch here. He was not, for God took him. And then what does the author of Hebrews say about it in verse 5? He was not found because God had taken him. And so there seems to be parallels being drawn here between what happened to Elijah and what happened to Enoch. But regardless, the point is that Enoch did not die, that something significant happened and God took him. And so what does the author of Hebrews see in the life of Enoch? Well, he says in Hebrews 11 verse 5, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, if you read the Old Testament passage in our translations, it says nothing about Enoch pleasing God. What it does say is that Enoch walked with God. And so there's this Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, and, and when they looked at that passage, Enoch walked with, walked with God, they translated it as Enoch pleased God. Because that's what it means ultimately. And so the author of Hebrews is looking at that Greek translation and he is seeing the Enoch please God. And then he draws these connections that we talked about last week that if Enoch pleased God, that means he had to have faith in God because you cannot please God if you don't believe in him. That's what he's saying in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, look, without faith, it is impossible to please him. You cannot please God apart from faith for because... Those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So Paul's there. That one's pretty obvious, right? If you're going to believe in something, you believe that he exists. So that's basic. But the second one is perhaps a little bit surprising that those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what does it look like to have faith that endures? What, what does faith that endures look like? Well, we must believe that God exists. But the second statement is that we must believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, if you and I are going to endure through hardship and difficulties with our faith in place and our eyes fixed on Christ, then what we must do is cultivate a faith that believes in God as a kind, benevolent, patient, rewarding Father. It's that kind of faith that helps us endure. There is a clear connection between enduring and trusting that God rewards those who draw near to him. In other words, 
One of the ways we endure and are compelled to draw near is by remembering that when his children ask him for good things, when we ask for something like a fish, he's not going to give us a serpent. Right? That's what Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is not cruel or capricious. He is not spiteful toward his children. No, it says he rewards all who turn to him and seek him. And I just want to pause here and really just meditate over this for a few moments because because there is a really astonishing, mind-bending, overwhelming reality to this that exponentially even increases how we should understand God's love and patience and reward toward us. So, so look there again at, verse, at the last phrase of verse 6. He rewards those who seek him. But there's a significant obstacle to experiencing those rewards. And that is that Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, tell us that no one seeks God. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And yet, here Hebrews 11 says that he rewards those who seek him. Well, we have a bit of an issue, don't we? No one seeks him, and yet he rewards those who seek him. So what's going to get us to the reward? Well, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 goes on to tell us that we are dead in our trespasses, that we are by nature children of wrath, right? Just pile all this on. No one seeks God. You're dead in your trespasses. You're a child of wrath. So how do we get to the reward? Well, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 goes on to say, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this, verse 7 of Ephesians 2. So that, so that, in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you know how staggering this is? He rewards those who seek him. You cannot seek him because you are dead in your trespasses. You are a child of wrath. So what does God do about it? He reaches into your heart. 
and he takes out the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh and he regenerates your heart and he gives you the gift of faith and he opens your blind eyes, right? This is scripture language, right? He opens your blind eyes so that you can see the glories of Christ so that you can seek him because you couldn't before. And why does he do that for us? Why does he make us alive? Why does he raise us up with him? Why does he do all that to people who are children of wrath and dead in their transgressions and are not seeking him? Why does he transform them and give them new hearts? Ephesians 2.7 says, so that, so that in the coming ages, he can pour out the immeasurable riches of grace on you. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. And he's made you a seeker by his grace so that he can pour out riches on you. So yes, if you're going to believe in God, believe that he's a rewarder and that he's good and kind. So as we draw near to him, we, we do so with every confidence that the whole reason he has redeemed us is so that he can pour out his immeasurable grace on us for the glory of his name. Look, it's why James chapter 1, the ladies have been going through James in their Bible study. So I know they've been meditating over this a, a, a few months ago. But, but, but James chapter 1 says to us, now listen, count it all joy, my brothers, when you endure trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what's interesting. That word steadfastness in the original language is the exact same word as the word endurance in Hebrews chapter 10. You have need of endurance through faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Therefore, we endure by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is all the evidence we need that God is a rewarder that he is kind and good because he sent his son in the flesh to lay down his life in our place, to take the wrath that we deserve, to graciously give us his righteous life and impute it to us so that through faith as we're going to see, we can be declared to be righteous. Therefore, we get through the difficult days. Therefore, we endure through the trials and tribulations and hardships of this life because we know that our ultimate destination will be to receive an infinite and unthinkable treasure of the riches of God's grace for all eternity. But now, how does that faith play out in our lives? That's the question that the life of Noah and the life of Abraham begin to answer for us. So that's what that faith looks like, right? It's a faith that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, that he's kind and good, that we look forward to the reward of the immeasurable grace that's going to be poured out on us. But what does that practically look like in our lives? So let's now look at number two, the faith of Noah. The faith of Noah. Look at verse seven with me. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now this is perhaps one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Even if people don't know every detail, they know something of the story. In Genesis chapter 6, God comes to Noah and he tells him, I'm going to bring a worldwide flood and I'm going to destroy everything that breathes on planet earth by this flood. Everyone is going to die except you and your family. I'm going to make a covenant with you and you and your wife and your sons and their wives. I'm going to show you how to build a boat, a big ark, and you can take your family onto the ark and you will be safe. And also you'll take two of every unclean animal and either seven or seven pairs, depending on how you read the original text of clean animals onto this ark, and they will be preserved through this worldwide flood. So as Hebrews 11 chapter 6 says, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Now this is important. And I'm sure you've thought about it before, but let's think about it again. God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to destroy everything on it. So you need to build this boat. I'm going to give you instructions on how to do it. And so Noah starts building a boat in the middle of nowhere. And nobody can see why he's doing it or understand why he's doing it. It makes zero sense. There's no water nearby. There's no modern technology that could move a boat of that size to the Mediterranean Sea, especially not to an ocean. Like, it's just a big boat in the middle of nowhere. And we don't know exactly how long this took. There's speculation it, because of the dating and how it works out. We know it wasn't more than 100 years, but it was likely 70 or more years that Noah worked on this boat decade after decade after decade building a big boat in the middle of nowhere, right? So you can imagine the conversations Noah had with those who lived around him, right? They come up and, and, and they would have asked, you know, why in the world are you building a huge boat in the middle of nowhere? You're, do you know what a boat is for? It's supposed to go in water. There's no water nearby. Why are you constructing this thing. And of course, Noah would have responded, well, God said the water's coming to us. God said he's going to send a flood and it's going to destroy everything on earth, including you and your family. So as you can imagine, Noah probably didn't have a lot of friends over those 70 or so years, right? He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was seen as a naysayer. And yet, for decades, day after day, month after month, year after year, they're working, putting this ark together in the middle of dry land because God told them he was going to bring the flood. It was an unseen reality and yet in reverent fear, Noah continued the construction of the ark for the saving of his household. Which is why the end of verse 7 says, ultimately by this he condemned the world because his family was saved 
and the rest of the world was left condemned to die. Look, I think this is a, this is a really powerful example of what living by faith and what is hoped for and being convinced of what is not seen looks like. At any point in the process, Noah could have given up on God and said, look, I've been building this boat for two or three decades now, and there is no water that's come of any significance that can make this thing float. I really don't think you're going to do what you said you're going to do, God. And he could have laid down his hammer or saw or whatever tools they used and just said, I'm exhausted. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done with it. I, I promise you, I promise you there were days that Noah woke up thinking, I cannot cut another piece of wood today. I cannot connect another piece of wood to this boat today. I've been doing this for decades. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Right? Praise God that smartphones weren't around. TikTok and Instagram, this, the thing would have never gotten finished, right? Right? So just day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. One more board. One more nail. One more connection. Day after day, how did he endure? Because he had faith in what God said to him. That was the only thing that kept him going. The thought that if he doesn't finish this boat, he and his wife and his sons and his son's wife are all going to perish. So what choice did he have? He endured. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't always pleasant. It was hard, difficult work. Listen, we have to keep on enduring in our walk with Jesus. And if we take this as an illustration, we, we have to keep on enduring building the arc of our spiritual maturity. And it doesn't happen in one day. It doesn't happen in one day. You don't sit down and read your whole Bible in one day and you're done. You don't say a prayer one day and you're finished. No, it's one chapter at a time. Meditating on these two verses over here one day, these 10 verses over here the next day. It's this 10 minutes of prayer this day, this five minutes of prayer the other day. It's this 30 minutes of dedicated prayer the other day. It's gathering with God's people week after week after week after week. It's showing up for life group week after week after week after week. One board at a time. And there's going to be days where you just simply don't feel like doing it. Just like Noah, I'm sure, didn't feel like cutting another board. There's going to be days you wake up and your heart's not in it. And you don't feel like reading your Bible. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like coming to church on Sunday. You don't feel like giving up another evening to go to life group. But it's those days that God is calling us to endure. And to keep on trusting him 
to keep on looking ahead and knowing that we have to be ready, that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, that we cannot throw away our confidence, have our hope fixed on something greater, on the promises of God that await us and the glorious riches of being with Christ for all eternity. And Noah's ultimate reward for the faithfulness, of course, he was saved through the flood and his family was saved, but the ultimate reward comes at the end of verse 7. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was not, in the literal sense of the word, Noah was not righteous. He was a sinner. Every human being on planet earth save Jesus was a sinner. But praise be to God that in his life, and as we saw earlier in the life of Abel, and as we will see in the life of Abraham, that through faith, God declares us righteous. That it's through faith that he sees us as having perfectly obeyed the law in our place so that in the last day when we stand before the judgment seat, we are judged by the righteous life of Jesus Christ and not by our own. We are righteous by faith. And so if we endure like Noah endured, we will be heirs with him of the righteousness that comes by faith. And of course, the most well-known man in the Bible about whom that was declared in Genesis is Abraham himself. And so let's conclude this morning by looking at the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12 this morning. But chapter 11, as you'll see next week, continues on giving us more and more about Abraham's life and his faith. But we're just going to look at this short section in verses 8 through 12. Verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, we find this account at the end of Genesis 11, really into Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I want you to leave your land, your country, and I want you to go somewhere else. But Abraham doesn't know where he's going. Just listen to all the words of, of uncertainty that are a part of this story in Hebrews chapter 11 as the author of Hebrews recounts this for us. First he says, I want you go, to go to a place, right? That's what verse 8 says. Just a place that you're going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He just said, I want you to go somewhere and I'm going to give you the place you go. And he didn't tell him where he was going. It's, it's as if God said to Abraham, I just need you to go over yonder and it's going to all be yours. And so he went, not knowing where he was going. And then it's not until he finally actually arrives in Canaan, when he actually finally gets there, that Genesis says, God then says to him, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land to you. It wasn't until he, until he got there that he knew what land God was talking about. And then look at Hebrews 11.9. Even when he got there, even though it was promised to him, it didn't fully actually belong to him, right? He had to live there as if he was living in a foreign land. He, he lived in tents. He had no permanent home there. They never built a neighborhood. They, they lived in these temporary tents. Never realizing the promise, but always trusting it. 
You see, I think it's really easy for us to just read over how strange this would have been. All right, just, just imagine if we walk out of here this morning and we see a large family who's been hiking down 540, come up off the exit, and they're carrying a lot of backpacks, and they make their way out here to the, to the backyard kind of area of the church, and they just set up camp, right? Tents everywhere, set up camp on our property, and we would think that was pretty strange, right? Now, maybe we would just think that's like the 540 capital tent city, right, being moved over here. I don't know. But, but they, they come over here, and we, we go out there, and we begin to ask some questions like, you know, what are you guys doing? This is our property. We're, we're not too comfortable with this. And the guy who's the clear leader of the group comes up and says, oh, well, God told us he's given this to us, actually. And not just this, but basically like all of Wake County, God said it's mine. You may not realize that yet, but we're just going to live in these tents for a while. And eventually, this whole area, this whole county is going to belong to my family. What would you say to them? You would say, no, I don't think that's going to happen. And you need to pack up the tents and move on, right? You would think they were crazy. Everybody watching Abraham would have thought he was absolutely insane to believe that God was going to give him his offspring, that is, the entire land that was occupied. People lived there. And yet, what did Abraham do? He went, not knowing where he was going, not knowing when the land would eventually become his, and ultimately he never sees it fully come to fruition. They don't see that until after the Exodus and Moses and the wilderness wandering until finally they come in under Joshua into the promised land. It's, it's, it's centuries later. It was an unseen reality. So what is it that sustained Abraham's faith in those days when everybody would have surely thought he was crazy? What does it say in verse 10? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, everything in Abraham's life by the world's standards would have appeared to be uncertain and unstable. Right? He's living in tents. The land doesn't really belong to him. He's a wanderer. But yet Abraham was one of the most stable, steadfast men you'll ever meet. Why? Because he knew there was a city to come that had foundations, that was stable, that was unshakable. And it wasn't the land he was going to inherit on earth. I think this is a clear reference to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth whose designer and builder is God and it has an unshakable foundation that will, in, that will endure for all eternity. You know, I'll never forget one of our first homes right out of seminary. We moved to Clewiston, Florida, deep south Florida, like marshland, squishy land, and we lived in a house that the church owned. And uh, the, the, the men in the church loved telling us the story of how that house was built. 
because the land is so unstable there, they have to dig like 15 feet down just for a normal like three-bedroom house. They have to dig way down and they have to build these concrete pillars to build the house on. So there came a point where we had a lot of rain and you could actually like see under the foundation of our house. And that's a little concerning, right? There's no ground under the house. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. That thing's on concrete pillars. It's not going anywhere. So, okay, well, I b believe you, I guess. And I don't worry about it, right? So, but it had foundations, right? It was stable. It wasn't going to move even though the ground under it was eroding away. This city that Abraham was waiting for had an unshakable foundation and that gave him an unshakable faith even when everything around him appeared to be uncertain and unstable. The God he believed in was sure and steadfast. So what sustained Abraham and helped him endure knowing, knowing that one day there would be a glorious, unthinkably beautiful city where he would dwell with God for all eternity. Look, the reality is 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 tells all of us we're all strangers and exiles. It's not just Abraham. We're all strangers and exiles in this world until Christ returns and gathers his own and we have the new heavens and the new earth and our glorified body, glorified resurrected bodies dwelling with him forever. Until that day, we are those living on this planet are strangers and exiles looking for the stable city that has foundations who are made by God. And it's that future hope that sustained us. It's that same future hope that gave Sarah faith in verse 11, right? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Remember, part of God's promise wasn't just that the land would belong to them, but as Verse 12 tells us that they would have descendants, Abraham and Sarah, as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the shore. And Abraham and Sarah are looking at each other like, how are we going to have this many descendants when we don't even have one? And Sarah's past the childbearing age. It seems impossible. And Abraham's so old <laughs> This cracks me up. Abraham's so old, the Bible says he's as good as a dead man, right? That's an old dude, right? If the Bible says you're as good as dead, like he was done. There's zero hope. But there was hope because God said he would do it. And because God said he would do it, the circumstances do not matter. And so because she considered him faithful, God faithful, who had made the promise, by faith, God gave her the power to conceive through Abraham. And they had Isaac, and from him, the generations to come, those who would trust in God through faith. We are the descendants of Abraham, even as we sit in this room this morning. You see, faith is seeing Faith is looking around and seeing all the human reasons for doubt and uncertainty while knowing that God's promises give us a greater certainty that can ever be imagined. That's what it means to endure by faith. 
Even when life is difficult and it seems impossible and we're tired and we're weary and we don't feel like we can endure another day. We don't feel like we can fight sin another day. We don't feel like we can pursue the spiritual disciplines another day. What God says to us is lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Remember the promises I've made to you. An eternal reward awaits you through Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him. As Dennis reminded us, that's ultimately where this chapter is going to land. Hebrews chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God has proven that he wants to reward us by sending his son to die in our place. So we daily turn to him and give thanks to God for the reality of the work of Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it is by that faith that we endure the difficulty of following Christ in this life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you've been honest with us about what it means to follow you. That it's not always easy, that even as we look at the saints of old, their faith was difficult. Noah faced difficult circumstances for decade after decade after decade, but you sustained him and he remained faithful. And because of his faith, he and his family were saved and he became an heir of righteousness. Abraham trusted you, having no clue where he was going to go, but you sustained his faith. You worked through the life, the lives of both him and Sarah. Father, even at times when it appeared, if we read the narrative that that Sarah and Abraham's faith floundered. Ultimately, you look at the ultimate outcomes and ultimately, in the end, they trusted you. So we're thankful for your grace and your mercy that looks at our faith and counts it as righteousness. We are thankful for the life of Christ that stands in our place and the righteousness that you have given us through his perfect, spotless, sinless life. Father, we have need of endurance. And every person in this room, myself included, is weak and frail. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by the power of your spirit this morning. We pray that the examples of the lives of, uh, of these men and, and, and Sarah and other women we'll see in this chapter would sustain us and keep us. And that we will join them in their faith and in their example. And as we follow them, we will keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We thank, we're thankful that you are a rewarding, good, and faithful God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.